0: In the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to The Capital City Podcast. I was really pleased that Adam and Lori asked me to hang out with Robbie for the day, do a little bit of almost job shadowing, right? Get a sense for what is it like to be a pastor. And I was like, well, what, what do I do, right? So I ha- we went through a, f- a few things that I do during the day. And I thought well, this would be fun to have Robbie pick a sermon text for us. And that we could start develop, developing it together and work through some notes, and then I could continue on and finish the sermon later. So, uh, I wanted to ask, we're going to be in Philemon today, and I wanted to ask Robbie why he likes this, why he picked this passage here. So, come back on this way. Here you go. I picked it because uh, Paul is asking a servant uh, owner to ask or er, to welcome the servant back, not as a servant, but as a brother in Christ. And when do you remember your first memory of, of hearing about this book, or reading it, or learning about it? It was, I think, one of the first times I read the Bible. All right. Well, thank you, Robbie, and thank good choice. So Robbie sat with me. I'll maybe tell. I'll, I'll let you go sit back down. Uh, why don't you guys put your hands together for Robbie? He helped me. He's actually a really strong reader of texts, and not only that, but the context, right? The stuff that's not necessarily there on the page, but that is going on behind the scenes. Uh, And so it was really helpful to to work through that with Robbie a few weeks ago. So thank you again, Robbie, for picking this text and going through this. So this is actually really serendipitous because I have been toying with the idea of doing a St. Paul in St. Paul series, right? So the Apostle Paul is the first one in that series. So the Apostle Paul in St. Paul is how I'm naming that. And I thought, you know, how how fun would it be to approach Paul more from his sort of human side rather than from his teaching? Right? We're always treating Paul like a brain on a stick, right? He's this theological genius, and we forget that he's a person, that he's a human being who has a life and a background uh, and emotions. And so, as Protestants, we're so stuck with like going through Romans all the time. Oh, this is Paul. It's what he says in Romans. It's like, well, no, that's some of his teaching, but what is Paul like? And so I thought. This is so perfect, because then Robbie, when I met with him, he said, I'd like to you know, go through this text in Philemon. And I was like, this is perfect, because uh, we, like I said, we don't really know Paul. What we think we know is what the Paul that sort of, the idea of Paul that Luther came up with is what we think of when we think of Paul, right? Justific- justific- justification by faith, not by works. That's what we think of when we think of Paul. But we know very little about him. You know, what was he like? where was he from? What were his parents like? Do we know anything about this? Uh, what did the early church say about him? Are there things that we're forgetting to talk about? And so that is why this is so serendipitous, because I was thinking of doing this series, and then Robbie said, let's go through Philemon, because Philemon is really unique among all of the letters of Paul because it shows his humanity so much better than any other of his other letters or teachings. And the reason is that it's the only letter we have that was written to an individual only, right? So Titus was kind of written to an individual, but it clearly, if you read it, it's clearly to the whole church too. Whereas this letter to Philemon, it is to him, and it's about Onesimus, and that's it. It's a private letter, but it has survived into the church. And so it's kind of like when you're reading a biography, and the biographer talks about, you know, the person... That the book is about. It'll talk about their teaching and their public message, but then it'll dive into their personal correspondence, right? It'll dive into their letters, their emails, whatever it might be, and then you get a sense for, like, who is this private person, right? When they're not publicly performing for others, what are they like when they're just communicating with one other person? And that's what Philemon gives us for Paul. Uh, I was reminded of this last night. Hopefully, Aubrey won't mind me saying this. Uh, But I was telling her that I was going to be preaching from Philemon. She's like, you know, remind me again. Give me the kind of the plot basics of that one. I was like, oh, right. Maybe I should set the stage a bit because we're not all nearly as familiar with Philemon as we are with, say, Romans or Luke or something like that. So here's the stage. This is what's happening in Philemon. And then we'll use this to dive into Paul more personally next week. So... Uh, one of the leaders of the church at Colossae, where we get the book of, to the Colossians from, one of the leaders, and probably the one who was hosting the church in his home, he was wealthy enough to have a large enough home to host the church, his name is Philemon, and he learned of the gospel of Jesus Christ through Paul. He loves Paul, he cherishes cherishes his teaching, and looks to him as a leader. Now, at this point, Paul is in Rome, and he's in prison. And one day, at the state, sort of the setting of this letter— One day, someone comes to visit him in prison, and it's a young man named Onesimus, which uh, in Greek means useful, which is kind of funny. His name is Onesimus. And he is, I hate to use this term because we have such connotations with it, but he is a runaway bondservant. We might say a runaway slave, uh, a household slave of Philemon. Now, first, let me just sort of like clear the air here and disabuse you a little bit of this term. So he's still an owned person, right? So there's certainly injustice happening here. But I want you guys to clear the idea of what slavery was in the the American South, you know, 150, 160 years ago. It's not that kind of slavery, right? We grow up learning about this, and rightly so. So when we think of a runaway slave, we think of the Underground Railroad, and we think of the plantations and things like that. This is not the kind of slavery that at least uh, Onesimus was under. So uh, he doesn't he's not trying to run away like a slave in the South would from a plantation to sort of be anonymous and carry on a new life. He runs away fully with the intention of going back. But he's going to Paul to try to seek a kind of intervention and help and someone to advocate for him so that he can go back to his owner in good standing. Uh, For him, you know, think of this. Would you rather be a butler in a mansion or a poor peasant under the sun working 12 hours a day? Now, not all slaves had that kind of situation in in the ancient world, but this one, uh, Onesimus is a household slave, which is at the very top of the rankings of slaves in the ancient world or or bond servants in the ancient world. And so he comes to Paul looking for help and looking for a kind of go-between because he has made some big mistakes with his owner. So if you think about like Joseph in the Old Testament in Potiphar's household, he was put over a lot of the business of the house. He's still an owned person, right? He is a slave but he has a lot of uh, sort of managerial responsibilities. He's directing the business of the house. He's making investments. He's selling things. He has a lot of freedom, right? He's not like on a plantation just working hard in the fields. He has a lot of uh, almost kind of what we'd say are employee responsibilities today. But of course, don't get me wrong, he is an owned person. This is injustice. Um, But his intention in coming to Paul is to seek help so that he can go back to his position. What looks like... What it looks like happened is that he made some investments, he made some business dealings, probably with the permission of his master, or sort of under his master's overall commissioning, and then he lost big, right? So this Onesimus probably made some investments and then lost his master a ton of money. And so he runs away because at this point he, th- he thinks he'll be sold, he'll, he'll kind of find his way into a worse kind of slavery. And so uh, some people will read this book and they get all bent out of shape, because they think a runaway slave in the style of the Underground Railroad you know, is sneaking up to the north. And then Paul sort of you know, catches him and is like, hey, go back to your master. That's not what's happening here. This Onesimus comes to Paul fully with the intention of going back home to work for his master, but he's asking Paul for help. So he's not like, no, Paul, don't send me back there. That's not what's going on here. Um, so he comes to Paul. He's a runaway bond servant or slave. He has no land, he has no money to his name, and he wants to go back to this kind of butler-manager position, but being forgiven somehow of all this money that he's lost. And so he runs to Paul to intervene. Paul is in prison in Rome, and that's where this letter picks up. Now, what's interesting about this is Onesimus walks from Colossae in Turkey to Rome. And if you do a quick search on that, just even by modern highway standards, it's about 1,500 miles. Uh, So you know the song, I was thinking this could be the title for this sermon. You know the song, and I would walk 500 miles, and I would walk 500 more, right? I won't bother you by telling this. Onesimus has this guy beat by a long shot. He's walked 1,500 miles, right? So he's gone another you know, third beyond this, uh, this idea of this song. He goes 1,500 miles to get away from his master. And he comes to Paul, and he has this very clear request and a clear societal role in mind. Uh, so I think of it like this. Uh, when a student comes to me and says, hey, you know, I just applied for uh, Wheaton or Bethel, and you know, what they need from me is, I know exactly what's going to come next, right? This is a genre cue for a kind of societal role. The student wants a reference, and they're going to ask me to be that reference, right? So when you live in this society, you understand that kind of a role. Hey, I'm going to be getting in, I'm hoping to apply to this university, and what they need from me, and then you sort of understand already what's happening. Or uh, maybe another clearer example... The other day, my nephews uh, approached me sort of awkwardly with a binder in front of them. And they are like, hey, you know, I'm a part of this organization called Trail Life. And they've got this binder in front of them. and They're kind of going through this pitch. I'm part of this organization called Trail Life. And, you know, can I spend a few minutes showing you something? And you know instantly what's about to happen, right? All of a sudden, you've got this societal role, right? You've got someone pitching a fundraiser. And then you've got somebody else who's expected to give. And so, you know, you, you smile and encourage them. And you want to buy something from this binder or give or something to sort of play your role and to, to help out to encourage the work that they're doing. This is what's happening when Onesimus comes to Paul. Uh, Paul knows exactly what his role is, and we won't get into all of the cultural backgrounds because it'll take too long. But what's happening is what's called a patron-client relationship, that this client, this servant, has wronged his patron, the person who has power over him. So what he does in order to seek a kind of forgiveness or to seek a middle way, a, a someone who would help him to make amends is he goes to that patron's patron, right? He goes to someone who's higher than his own patron. So he's sort of going above his own patron's head and saying, can I be a client at your feet, Paul? And will you be my patron? Will you help me out here? So we won't get into all the background here, but what I mean to say is that role is as clearly defined for them as when my nephew comes up to me with a binder. Nobody is mistaking at all what's happening here. So he's asking Paul to intercede for him and to help. So um, let's see here. I've already gone into some of this Joseph and Potiphar stuff. So let me move on here. In this situation, Paul's in prison. This slave comes to him and asks him to be his patron so that he can go back and work under his master forgiven. So with that, as a kind of stage and scene setting, I'll start reading this letter. Now, the first verses are kind of greeting, but then you'll see what's going on. And I'll tell you some of Robbie's insights as we go as well. Okay, uh, verse 1 says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Apia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your Philemon's home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's just a greeting. Now we'll get on to this. There's more meat here. See what Paul is doing. Um, Paul is a master of rhetoric, and he's a master of persuasion. He started many churches that have met every single Sunday from 2,000 years ago still to today. He's a master of persuasion. Let's see here. Uh, Verse 4, he says, "'I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers.'" He's saying this to Philemon. "'I always thank my God for you, Philemon, as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus.'" I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. You have delighted the hearts of the Lord's people. So I was really pleased when I met with Robbie, you know, I I talked about this. I said, you know, we know what's going to happen. He's going to ask Philemon to, accept Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a free person, as a brother in Christ. That is a huge ask. We're talking about many years' worth of wages that he's asking this guy to forgive, on top of whatever debts this slave has accumulated for him. So we know that he's got a really big ask coming up. So what is he doing here in getting himself ready, sort of teeing up this big ask? Um, so I asked Robbie, who I said is kind of a natural reader of texts here, and he, he points out, he pointed out that Paul opens the letter by praising Philemon for all of the good things he's done. He houses the church in his home, he prays for Philemon, uh, he tells him that he, Philemon has a reputation, he's known for his love, or he's known for his grace and helping the church and for hosting the church, and then he finally says, remember this word, he says, you refresh the heart's of the Lord's people. And so I asked Robbie, just already, before we even get to the next part, I said, what do you think he's trying to do there? Why, why is he saying these nice things uh, to Philemon? And Robbie said, uh, to get on his good side. And I think that's, that's certainly true, to get on his good side, right? To kind of, um, in a negative light, you might say to butter him up, right? That's not what he's doing. But he's, he's saying true things. He's not manipulating or coercing But the other side of the the evil to manipulation and coercion, the other side of that coin is influencing and persuading. And it's kind of the same skill set. And Paul had a gift to do this. So he's setting the tone. He's saying, Philemon, you're a good man. You're a blessing to the church. And you refresh the spirits of everyone in the church. And he's teeing himself up later to then say, are you going to keep doing this? Are you going to keep refreshing the church? Are you going to keep this reputation of being filled with love and grace for the church. But he hasn't said that yet. He'll get back to it. So this is where the real meat of the letter comes in. Verse 8. Paul says, "'Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains.' Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Okay, so he's saying, this might sound overbold to us, but again, this patron-client relationship gave him permission to talk like this. So it might sound a little bit bossy to us who tend to be softer around the edges, but in this patron-client relationship, Paul is sort of the supreme apostle and has authority over this church leader in Colossae. So he's saying, hey, I could order you to do what's right simply because I have the authority. But I want to appeal to you for love's sake to choose the right path on your own, right? We do this with our kids all the time. Hey, I could tell you what to do, but why don't you think for, for yourself? You know, maybe you ought to apologize to your brother. Maybe you ought to do something nice for him, right? You try to let them come up with that on their own. So he says, Onesimus has come to me and he's been useful to me and he has become a son to me. And what that means is, is that this Onesimus, when he arrived, he was not a believer. He was just your bondservant. But he arrived, and he talked to me, and he helped me. And over the course of our years, maybe together, he became a Christian. So he became my son in the faith. And that's what that means. So now Onesimus is a Christian, just like his master Philemon is. And this is interesting. He says, before, he was useless to you, right, when he was wasting, or losing money and leaving, uh, and this is a pun on Onesimus' name. Onesimus means useful. So he's saying, before he was like anti-Onesimus to you, but he was Onesimus to me. And now I pray that you would receive him back, that he might be Onesimus to both of us, that he would be useful uh, to both of us. So all through, we see this language that Paul is taking this awful, dehumanizing institution of slavery, and he is refusing to play that game, right? He, he understands he's not gonna overturn slavery in the Roman Empire overnight, but he's ser- he is clearly dismantling it by refusing to use slave language. He constantly refers to Onesimus as his son, and Paul if it refers to himself as the father. So he's replacing this ownership language with family language and saying, I hope that you choose to do the right thing. I could tell you what to do because I'm Paul, but I want you to make the right choice on your own. Onesimus has become a son to me, and I hope that he could become a son to you. As well. Now, at this point, you know, a lot of modern people, let me just break here from the story. Modern people will sometimes balk at Paul and say, why isn't he a 19th century abolitionist? Right? Why isn't he just like going full on against Rome and trying to undo the institution of slavery? Uh, that's sometimes what we would like him to do. Um, But again, remember, this is not what we think of. It's still slavery. It's still wrong, of course. And it would later, centuries later, Christians would end the institution of slavery in Rome. But it took time. Uh, But Onesimus wants to go back. This is his best career path in life, is not to become a poor peasant working under the sun 12 hours a day. It's to go back to Colossae and to be this manager butler guy in the forgiveness of his master. That's what he wants. Uh, It's his best path forward. And so remember, it's it's easy for us to judge past generation for certain societal evils because we don't see them within our context. Of course, slavery is one of the greatest blights that has ever happened in human history, American history, Uh, and it's here, clearly, Paul is laying the foundation for the dismantling of slavery later on. And, And like I said, a few hundred years later, Christians would end it in Rome. But know this, that in a few generations or a few hundred years, our own descendants will look to us and they will cry out about us, they'll say, how could my great-great-great-grandparents go to church every Sunday and deal and and allow mass incarceration, right? I don't know what it will be, right? But imagine, they'll they'll go one, two, 300 years in the the future, and they'll look back and say, how could people of this era, my great-great-grandparents like me, how could they let all of these mentally ill people walk around homeless and dying of infection and disease when they could have been properly taken care of, right? Or how can they allow, you know, millions of predominantly black and brown men to rot away in prisons for crimes that people who don't look like them largely are slapped on the wrist for and allowed to leave? You know, how could they allow that? And that's true. Like, those are real evils. And there are people that are fighting for those causes now, and we're grateful. But wouldn't you admit that for most of us, that's simply the way it is, right? It's not like it's okay, but that society with with mass incarceration or say mental illness expressed in homelessness, that's simply the society we were born into. It's like that when we were born. We didn't set up those systems, it was like that. And when we die, it'll probably still be like that. Now we ought to fight against those, but there's this habit in human life to sort of just accept the world around you for the way things are, right? Mass incarceration is a great, horrible blight and our, our descendants will absolutely judge us for it. But it's also sort of just the way it is. And you can fight against it and you can make a difference individually, but you won't just like flip this entire system instantly. So sometimes people will be hard on Paul and they're like, why isn't he, you know, this Frederick Douglass character? And it's like, well, he's certainly against enslaving people, but he, in his cognitive world, he doesn't even have an idea that slavery could be just completely done and flipped, right? So one in four people in the Roman Empire were slaves, one in four. Many of the people in the New Testament were slaves, they just didn't say this or name this. Uh, And so again, don't dog on Paul for not being like full on 19th century abolitionists because that's just not, in the same way that we're not fighting against the prison system with every ounce of our being, we just sort of accept the way it is even though it's terribly unjust, it's kind of also just the way it is, right? So that's where Paul is in this. Okay, so back to the text. I just wanna say this in case people are like, "Ah, I don't wanna listen to Paul because he's not an abolitionist, I'm not gonna even pay attention. So back to, back to this. Verse 12, Paul says to Philemon, I am sending him, Onesimus, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Do you have any passive-aggressive relatives in your life? Do you hear that in there? I'm sending Onesimus, who's my very heart. He's my son, I'm his father. I'm sending him back to you. I would have kept him because he was providing a service to me that you were not Philemon. You're this wealthy guy out in Colossae and I brought you to Christ and now you've got the church in your home. I have set you on this wonderful path in the gospel, but also your sort of career, your stature as this leader of the church. And guess what? You're not doing anything for me in Rome. But your runaway slave, he came and helped me day in and day out in your absence. He was the one doing the work you ought to have been doing or sending someone because you're wealthy and I know you've got it. You know, he's kind of doing this like you're not helping me, but he was helping me. And he's saying I I could have kept him so that he could have kept serving me, which is what you should have been doing anyway. But I wanted to send him back so that it wouldn't seem forced, but that any any service you provide for me would be voluntary. (laughs) It's wicked, isn't it? he says, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So notice, notice this huge shift here. Though I could tell you what to do, I want you to come to the right conclusion on your own. Now, he is your brother in Christ. He's dear to me. Receive him back, no longer as a slave, but free him. You know, receive him as a brother. You don't receive a household servant as a brother. He's saying receive him as an equal, as a brother, and as a fellow Christian. And he goes on to say, so if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. Let's see here. Yeah, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. (laughs) Again, it seems a little bit overbold to us. It's not in their context. In a patron-client relationship, this is very appropriate. To us, it's a bit on the nose, uh, but not in that culture. So he's saying, whatever bad investment Onesimus made, whatever money he owes you, charge it to me. Literally, put that amount of money on my account. Oops, I did forget to mention that you owe me your whole life, though. So, do you really want to charge me? You know, like, charge it to my account, but you owe me everything. So, think about it, because you're wealthy already, right? It's kind of this, like, it's pretty intense. Um, You owe me your entire self. But, yeah, if you want to squabble over money, that's fine. I'll pay it back. Charge it to my account. Uh, Then, finally, he says, I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. And how does he end it? He says, refresh my heart in Christ. Remember, that's the word I told you to hold on to, refresh. So he's saying before you, how's the church in your home? You're known for your love. You've got this great reputation. and You always refresh the hearts of the people of God. Then he ends it by saying all these things that he ought to do. And then he says, refresh my heart in Christ. Do the thing that you have always been doing, right? Show grace, show love, keep your reputation, refresh my heart by receiving Onesimus back as a free person. If that's not abolitionist, at least for its time, then I don't know anything about the scripture, right? If that's not just provocative, remarkable justice that he says, hey, this guy was a slave and he ran away and he owes you probably in the millions by today's standards, free him and take him on as a brother. Free him and take him on as a brother. And then... (laughs) He said he wasn't commanding him, right? That he wanted him to just sort of do it on his own. But then listen to this. He says, confident of your obedience. What? (laughs) Confident of your obedience. I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more. Imagine you get the letter up to this point, and you're the, the master, forget that it's a person because this changes the whole conversation, but imagine that any sort of property, which is how they would have seen it in that day. A human could be property, which is awful, but that's how, he, that's how Philemon would have seen it. Imagine that someone steals property from you or takes it, right? And then they're like, hey, you know, just give it up. Just be graceful and just give it up. You're like, eh, probably not, right? But Paul says, um, one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. And then he goes on to sort of close the letter. So what he's saying, he's in prison right now, but he says, I'm gonna get out of here soon. Prepare a guest room for me in your big villa, rich Philemon, prepare a guest room because I'm gonna come stay with you. And it might be a year or two or five, but I'm, I'm coming around. So now how does that change things, right? He's told you, accept this brother back in the Lord as a free person in Christ and not as your possession. And by the way, I'm gonna come hang out with you in a couple years. Can you get by with not taking his advice now? The guy who you owe your salvation to, essentially, the message of the gospel, at least, is coming by to check up on this letter. What happens to you if you just like completely shirk the advice? Like, "Ah, I'm not gonna do that. And then he comes in two or three years. What happens to you and your status and the way you're seen in the church when you just completely blatantly say no to the apostle Paul, who's more influential than all the other disciples combined? So that's what it's like For Paul to encourage and even demand an incredible justice, but then also there's follow-up, right? He he, he sort of commands, he he requires justice, but then he says, and I'm going to come follow up in a year or two or five. He never does because he's killed in Rome, but he lets it be known that he will be coming. This is the Paul that we so often forget. This is not the theologian Paul, this is not the teacher or the apostle, though he does lean on his authority as an apostle. More than anything, this is the person, the man, Paul. This is the individual, Paul, writing another man, saying, forgive this, Onesimus. Paul had no indication at all that this letter would live on. Paul would have written hundreds of letters over the course of his ministry. We have one of them that was to a person, right? There's other ones to the church that he may have suspected would be read aloud and preserved. This one, he had no inclination at all that anyone would ever see this besides Philemon. This is his true self with zero performance because no one else is gonna see it but Philemon. It just happens to have survived. And it shows what he is like as a person. Welcome this slave, but no longer as a slave, as a brother. And it backs up, it shows his theology, his teaching. Galatians 3, when he says, there is now under Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, (laughs) see if you guys are ready for this. I'm going to drop this like bombshell on you. Um, (laughs) Do you ever wonder why Philemon walked 1,500 miles to get to Paul? Surely there were dozens of important wealthy people that Onesimus could have gone to to enact this patron-client exchange, you know, in his own city or his in sort of like county, so to speak, within 100 miles maybe. But it seems none of them would have taken pity on Onesimus. None of them would have identified with Onesimus, and he knew that. Why? Why would no other patron help him out but Paul might? So I'm about to tell you the first and only new thing I've ever told you from the pulpit. In general, if someone tells you something new about the Bible, don't believe it. Like if it's new to you, fine. But like if no one's really said it before, if someone tells you something genuinely new, well, guess what? Biblical studies has been around for three or 2,000 years, depending on the Testament. So if someone has a genuinely new idea, don't go for it. Uh, But this is the first and only new thing. I've ever said here. So my job normally is to explain scripture within the light of what tradition has said about it, what scholars are saying about it. And if someone has something new to say, it's probably wrong. I would say in my four years here with this one exception, um, why did Onesimus go to Paul? Literally every other New Testament disciple was closer to him, all the other influential people. Now, there's an an article I'm writing with a senior New Testament scholar named Mark Fairchild on this very subject. So it's not written yet, but it will be soon. Uh, We actually have quite good evidence. This will blow your mind. We have quite good evidence that Paul himself may have been or likely was an emancipated slave. We have quite good evidence from the New Testament that Paul himself was born into a slave family in Tarsus and that when he was 12 years old, he was manumitted as a citizen of Rome. When you finish out your 20 years as a slave, including the kids that are born within the 20 years, you end with citizenship. It's a way to dangle a carrot and not have uh, slaves assassinate their masters. Uh, so I'll t- next week, I'm just gonna like leave you hanging on this. Next week, we'll spend the whole week or spend the whole day talking about that. We're gonna know Paul personally, and we're gonna dive into this idea that I'm writing up with Mark Fairchild about this. We have. The ancient world doesn't give us smoking guns very often. It's rare that you get that. And if, if you do, then that's already been figured out. We have very good evidence, and we'll go through that next week, that Paul himself was likely a manumitted or emancipated slave. And that this is why, of all of the hundreds of people Onesimus could have gone to who are closer, with equal power, with other disciples, with other people, whatever, that he would have gone 1,500 miles on foot to talk to Paul instead because of all of the people he could have talked to, Paul may have understood better, because again, we'll go through the evidence next week, that he likely came from a background of slavery himself. More on that next week, so hold on for that. Um, But let me ask you this, what did Philemon do? He got this letter, what did he do? The church has been reading this forever, no one knows, right? Was he angry? Did he say no, Paul, and take his slave back? You know, hey, Anesimus, you know, come back. You're going to be this, like, bottom feeder slave now. Like, what, what did he do? Did he sell him to the highest bidder for the worst kind of work? Or did he take him back as a servant, you know, to do the same work and kind of begrudging Paul since he said he'd visit? Did he meet him sort of halfway? Or did he free him and welcome him not as a slave, but as an equal brother and employ him in the leading of the church at Colossae? We can't know for sure, but church history much to many people's surprise, actually points us in a really strong direction. Scholars realized not too long ago that the New Testament rarely, rarely includes personal stories about people who were not still known at the point of the writing of the New Testament. And I'll explain this. When you hear about Peter's, you know, thrice denial and then weeping and then sort of having this um, forgiveness moment with Jesus, the reason you hear about that is because Peter is still around and his origin story matters. When you hear about Mary Magdalene or Zacchaeus and these incredible conversion stories, it's because those people were very important to the church, and so their stories got remembered. You do not preserve this letter about Onesimus to Philemon unless one of the two of them or both of them are known to the church 30 years later, right? There's all these people that probably had conversion experiences, followed Jesus, and then fell away two years later. Those stories didn't get remembered, right? You're not telling these really meaningful stories uh, about people from 30 years ago who aren't involved now in how you got your career or whatever it is. It's in the New Testament, if people are not around, leading, known, still sort of in the community, they often do not get their names and stories included. So we'd be able, we're able to conclude that Philemon or Onesimus or both of them are very important to the church among the time, or at the time when the church starts you know, collecting the canon. Do you guys know there was a third letter to the Corinthians? And we don't even have that. And that was to the whole church. But why do we have this, right? We don't have the third letter to the Corinthians, but why do we have this, right? How important was the third letter to the Corinthians? Very, and even that didn't survive, right? 2,000 years is a long time. But we have this letter because Philemon or Onesimus was very important and the church celebrated this, copied it, read it out loud every year, and the letter did not get lost or forgotten. And so this all seems pretty obvious now, that the stories that are told are about people who are still involved in leaders. But this makes, really, this makes things really interesting now that we realize this, because before, if a number of people had the same name, like the same first name, but you didn't know what city they were from, it's like, well, you just threw up your hands and didn't know if they were the same. But now that we know this fact about the stories are only told of the people who continued on in leadership normally, or who are known to the whole church, now you know that these personal and beautiful stories about these people with only one name, like a John or a Josiah or whoever, the, people that, the stories that are told about those single-named people are almost always the same people mentioned by that name in early church history. So what I'm getting to is this. If you dig into early church history, you will find the likely answer. Again, we can't know for sure, but the likely answer to how Philemon responded to this letter, which the Bible doesn't record for us, dig into history, you, you likely have the answer. So Timothy, Paul's Timothy, was the bishop and the highest leader in Ephesus for quite some time, just down the road from Onesimus in Colossae in about the 60s or the 70s AD. And I forget how if Timothy was martyred or died of old age, but Ephesus was the sort of capital, the leading city, and Colossae was sort of a, a distant, you know, suburb or, or rural village outside of Ephesus. And just like happens today the bigger, more powerful churches kind of get to choose their leaders, right? The churches in Minneapolis and St. Paul pull leaders sometimes from the suburbs or or elsewhere. And so, uh, yeah, just like major leagues will pull people from the minor leagues or whatever. And so Timothy had pastors who served alongside him in his work in Ephesus. And he was pulling those pastors from Colossae and from the other towns around. And one of them was known as being an excellent, excellent shepherd, called a pastor among pastors or a shepherd among shepherds. And he had a very warm way with people that early Christian historians did not forget. And they would mark this down about the shepherd of shepherds who was so warm uh, and, and loving to people. And when Timothy then died, the church needed a new bishop. And they looked to this pastor of pastors, they looked to this shepherd of shepherds, and they called him to be their bishop. And he served wonderfully for decades. And then finally, sadly, as an old man, he was martyred by Trajan, the emperor of Rome himself, just like Paul was martyred by Nero, the emperor of Rome. And the name of that bishop was Onesimus. Let me pray to close us. And then um, is Dustin still Yeah, I might invite you to come back up and just sort of noodle on the guitar while we're we're gonna do communion at the end of the service, if that's okay. Uh, Let me pray to close us. Father, we thank you for the things that we can see and know in Scripture clearly. We also thank you for the things that we can sort of guess at or with our best historical lenses on, say it might be likely or or plausible. Um, We thank you for this story of this runaway bondservant who meets with Paul, who Paul advocates for and sends back. And we thank you that he likely was received as a free brother, no longer a slave, but an equal and a brother in Christ, and went on to lead your church so wonderfully that still exists to this day. We pray that we would embody this radical grace, that we would step in and serve and help and represent the least of these, the weakest, that we would step alongside people without power in this world, love them and help them and serve them and defend them for those who would do them harm. We thank you for this series that we're beginning. We pray that you would help us to see who Paul is. Paul the man, Paul the human being, not just Paul the theologian or the brain on a stick. We pray you'd open our hearts to get to know this Paul, so that we could read his letters in your scripture more truly. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP, or visit our website for more information at CapitalCityStPaul.com